into the second book in God's Word, the book of Exodus. As we continue our ongoing series through Exodus this morning, we come to verse 16 and the ninth word that God spoke to the nation of Israel there at Mount Sinai. It was two weeks ago that we looked at the Eighth Commandment. And if you might rightly say the Eighth Commandment binds our hands to holiness, uh, we can say that the Ninth Commandment, it binds our tongues uh, to holiness. And so let me read that one verse for us and then pray for our time and and we'll begin together. Let us hear now as God speaks to us uh, through His Word. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we pray that you would send the Spirit among us this day, that you would open our hearts to behold the wondrous things in your law, that you give us hearts and souls that long to follow you in faith and repentance. For we're acutely aware of how far we have fallen short of, of your word in this ninth commandment. So stir within us a desire to hear your truth, to be free from distraction, to hear with earnestness and eagerness, for me to preach with courage and clarity as you say I must, as we want to look on Jesus Christ and live, and we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Several years ago, I went through a phase of spending free time while my wife was working at the hospital watching a series of documentaries that ESPN put together titled 30 for 30 series. And I imagine that some of you in the room might possibly have seen these. And uh, one of the ones that I remember most vividly was titled Fantastic Lies. It was about a case at a university some 15 years ago. And it was a case that began with an alleged accusation on a crime that was committed by three players of a sports team at a university. And it was a crime that an allegation that immediately took the nation's attention Certainly in the sports world, it was all swept up in it for a number of months, not least of which is because it seemed to scratch every cultural justice itch of the moment. And it quickly resulted in an entire season being canceled, a coach being forced to resign. But it was over 12 months later that the state's attorney general came out with the unusual step of officially declaring that all three of the accused were were innocent and that the local district attorney, he was disbarred from ever serving in the law again, and he was even held in contempt, and it was all this scandal and stupendous case that began with one person bearing false witness. And of course, we come to the commandment today that says none of us are to ever bear false witness. It's a commandment that continues on the ten words that God spoke to the nation of Israel. And you might not have thought about God's commandments in this way before, but In many ways, certainly the second table of the law functions almost for Israel and for God's people in general, uh, like a divine bill of rights, because the sixth commandment uh, gives us the right to life, the seventh commandment gives us the right to home, the eighth commandment gives us the right to property, and the commandment today gives us the right to a good reputation. But quite different is the Bible's bill of rights than the way we tend to think of rights here in America, because our history isn't it one of this side of the Atlantic on these shores where we say, I know my rights and I'm going to fight for them. But the path of Christianity is, I know my rights and I will give them up for the sake of others. Following in the steps of our Savior who laid aside His divine rights in order that He might take the form of a servant and save sinners like you and me. 
And it's not just that these commandments function as a, as a bill of rights of sorts. It also is something that we need to recognize when we come to the commandment in its negative form, don't do something, we do believe that it's communicating to us something positive at the same time. So what we've said in recent weeks, no murder means live to protect others. No adultery means live in purity. No stealing means live in generosity. Well, no lying, no falsehood in the ninth commandment. That just is the positive exhortation to live in truth towards others. That's the simple theme from this ninth word that I want you to see today. Live in truth towards others. I'm going to see it in two parts. First, speak the truth. We're going to pay attention to kind of the immediate context of the commandment in Israel's life and history. And then we're going to broaden it out as we must necessarily do as we seek to walk in truth. So we want to speak in truth and and walk in truth. Speak in truth. If you notice again, verse 16, it simply tells us, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now we were reading this last night with the children and I asked, well, what does it mean to bear false witness against your neighbor? And one of the kids, understandably and predictably said, well, it doesn't mean anything more than just no lying. And that's true at a level, but actually the immediate context is much more specific and precise. Because students, where is it that someone gives witness or testimony against another person? Well, it's in the courtroom, isn't it? It's, It's a legal setting. So that's what the ninth word is originally talking about, this context of the courtroom. And you need to know something about ancient judicial systems and Thus, justice, if you're going to understand why this is so important in Israel's life, it gets into the Ten Commandments. Now, there was a period of time when I was in middle school that every year we had this annual take your son or daughter to work day, which basically meant you got to skip school for an entire day, but you had to go with your parents to where your mother worked or where your father worked. And so one year I went to work with my dad in his big IT department at this large company. And the next year it came around, I said, I think this year I'm going to go with Grandpa. And the reason why is because at the time my grandfather was the head of the Dallas Crime Lab. So I went down with him that day, and it was a day full of forensic science. We were working on this case and examining matters of evidence, weren't we? Gunshot residue, fingerprint analysis, hairs under microscopes. But kids, you need to know that such things didn't exist in the ancient world. When it came to adjudicating a matter, to deciding whether a person was guilty or not guilty... Almost always, all you had was what? A person's word. Testimony. People giving witness was all you had in order to decide if someone was guilty or not guilty. Even most ancient Near Eastern cultures, their judicial systems where you were presumed guilty until proven innocent. And God is saying that you, of course, are not to be like the other nations. You're to never give false witness against your neighbor in a courtroom setting over legal matters. Because so often, and you might have noticed this if you just read through uh, the Old Testament law codes, that you see a lot of times there are crimes that are capital offenses. And thus it was quite easy for the false word of one person to lead to the death of another person. Thus Yahweh says, no false witness allowed amongst my people. But to make sure that we understand even the fullness of what this commandment means, flip over to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 19. This is the section there as Moses is speaking once again to God's people as they're on the precipice of the promised land. There's a section on giving witness in law cases that helps us understand further what the Lord is after in this ninth word. So, first of all, what you need to see, and you need to see two things from Deuteronomy 19, is that God required multiple witnesses. 
Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 19 says, A single witness shall not suffice against the person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And that is so important, not just in the Old Testament, but the New Testament. Jesus picks it up in Matthew chapter 18, talking about church discipline. Only on the charge of two or three should you get to the point of possibly excommunicating someone from the fellowship. Or in the same way in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says you shouldn't receive a charge against another pastor or another elder except on the evidence and witness of, of two or three people. So there's the requirement of multiple witnesses. And the reason why is, you probably know as well as I do, how the word of just one person can so harm another person's reputation, even though if it isn't substantiated by other witnesses. That's why Martin Luther would say in his commentary on the Ninth Commandment that a person's reputation can easily and quickly be ruined, but it's not so easily and quickly restored. So only listen on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, not just that, you'll notice verse 18 and 19, Deuteronomy 19 also tells us that God doesn't require only multiple witnesses in courtroom cases, but also that the person giving the witness, thus the accuser is really the idea there, must participate in the punishment. Notice what we're told. If the judges shall inquire diligently, if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Uh, the idea there is, and you might have known this before, even Jesus talks about this, doesn't he, in a rather famous scene about casting the first stone. That if you accuse someone of a crime, and said crime brought the punishment of execution, and that person was convicted of the crime, you as the accuser were to throw the first stone. But you can understand the logical implications of that. If you knew your testimony was going to lead to the death of another person, it should be true. That you wouldn't just so blithely lie and speak falsehood when you know you're getting ready to participate in that person's execution. And what this, these verses are saying is that if you're found to be guilty of perjury, so that's bearing false witness, whatever punishment would have come on the criminal, supposed criminal, now is on your head. So if it was a crime that you had accused them of that required capital punishment, you're executed. Or if it was a crime that brought about a fine, well, you're now going to have to pay that fine, so on and so forth. And this was necessary for God's people to walk in justice, for God's people to walk in truth, to speak in truth as His chosen people. And then if you broaden out the commandment in light of the Bible's other teachings related to truth-telling, it's not just a commandment about speaking the truth, but also it's a call for us to walk in truth. Now, in recent weeks, I've had reason to read this old Presbyterian pastor named William Swan Plummer. He's a pastor in the 19th century in, in Virginia, and I've known him for a number of years because he has this brilliant commentary, and it's a big commentary on Psalms, but I've been reading some more personal and pastoral writings of his, and I, I recently discovered that in one of his personal Bibles, he had this list of resolutions, is really what it was, on speaking in a Christ-like manner. And there was nine in particular that were there, but here's just a couple of them to give you a flavor of his desire to walk in truth. He said, number one, I will steadily keep in view my latter end, and remember that soon I must stand before my judge. I would not live a day or hour in forgetfulness of the truth that all my words are to undergo his scrutiny. He says, number two, 
I will endeavor to often ask myself, how would Jesus Christ speak for he in my circumstances? Or number three, I will rely more and more on the grace of Christ to preserve me from sins of the tongue. I have too much relied on the strength of my own virtue and perseverance, and so I have failed. Well, the fifth one out of these nine, he says, I will often call myself to account for my words during the day, and when I have erred, I will not spare myself from these severe and salutary answers which my sins deserve. I will not justify, excuse, or extenuate the sins of my lips. Should Lord Terry and generations in the future discover your Bible, maybe it perhaps has resolutions of what it means to walk in truth. I wonder what kind of resolutions, biblically minded, that you might offer for being faithful with your speech. You know, kids, there was an old pastor that used to talk about really what's necessary more often than not for us being faithful to the ninth word. He said something quite memorable but altogether simple and usually quite true. Children, what he said is the same strategy that we use for not letting lies come out of our mouth is the same strategy that we ought to use for not letting flies into our mouth. Just keeping your mouth shut will go a long way, won't it? To obeying the ninth word. But it's a full word. It's not just bearing false witness that God doesn't want us to do. It's, of course, more comprehensive than that, isn't it? So the Heidelberg Catechism will say in its answer related to what's the aim of the ninth commandment. It says, yes, that I not bear false witness against my neighbor. But further, it goes on to say that I twist no one's words. I not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing rather in court and everywhere else. I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind because these are the very devices Satan uses and they would call down on me God's intense wrath. I should love the truth, speak it candidly and openly acknowledge it. What then might be other ninth commandment sins of which the Bible speaks beyond bearing false witness in a courtroom context? Let me give you four. Number one, slander. Slander is, of course, passing along truth, or I should say it differently, passing along a statement about a person that you know is false, seeking, of course, to harm their reputation, to bring them down, all kinds of reasons why we do this. Sometimes it's just an inability to see a possibility of hope and grace in another person, imputing all the wrong motives that we could ever impute to another person to bring them down. Of course, there's not just slander, there's also gossip. Gossip can be anything from passing along a false report that's unsubstantiated, or at least I should say a report that's unsubstantiated, to passing along a report that's true, but you pass it along unnecessarily. I so often wonder, perhaps you're like me, that if gossip isn't one of those most respectable sins in Christian congregations these days, how many times might we even come home on the Lord's Day and we preface sentences and statements like, you know, I was talking to so-and-so today. Or you know what I heard when I was speaking with so-and-so today. And that, of course, doesn't mean, students, that it's always gossip. But what I want to challenge you in today, perhaps it's more often gossip than we're willing to admit. 
And this is, of course, tearing down our brother or sister's reputation, thus breaking the ninth word. So slander, gossip, of course, deceit would be a third category, a way in which we have broken the ninth commandment, where we twist the truth, where we, we twist it in certain ways to suit our own purposes. Maybe it's to bring another down, or perhaps sometimes it's even to make ourselves look better in the light and reputation of others. Oh, we perhaps deceive others into how hard we're actually working, how diligent we actually are in our parenting in order that our reputation might increase among others. And then fourthly, there, of course, is the saying of just lying, of lying and not telling the truth. What one of my sons said last night was the nature of, of breaking the ninth commandment. Now, parents, I hope that you're doing diligent work and, and speaking the truth of God's Word to your children, not just in maybe regular settings like a family worship time, but also just as you go along the way. And you want to make sure that as you're speaking God's word to your children, it's not merely just the words of grace and kindness that are found and given to us in Jesus Christ, but also words of warning and words of threat that do come to us in Scripture. You know, I do think that the single verse that is more etched upon my heart than any verse related to the parenting of my youth, and it has nothing to do with my parents. It surely has everything to do with me and my five sisters. As Proverbs 12, verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. And they are an abomination for a reason, right? That we who have been baptized, we have taken the triune name of God upon ourselves. He in whom there is no lie. It's not possible for him to lie. He is the truth. And Jesus says, of course, doesn't he, that a devil has the father of lies. I wonder which you reflect more often in your life, he who is truth or he who is deceit. We're to walk in truth, we're to speak in truth, we're to live in truth towards others. It's always a rather hyperbolic thing to say it this way, but I don't know if it's actually untrue that the most significant spark that was ever lit in human history, certainly in European history, it probably happened on September 1st, 1666. It happened at the king's baker's house. So children, you know, he's baking food for the king, and he didn't properly, you know, kind of shut down his oven as he went to bed that night. And it was sometime in the middle of the night that a spark flew from his oven, and it hit nearby firewood. Before you knew it, according to how houses were built back then, the baker's house is on fire. And before you knew it, an inn just nearby, a hotel, was on fire. And then before you knew it, all of Thames Street was on fire. And before you knew it, all of London was on fire. And before you knew it, 80% of London's property burned to the ground in the Great Fire of London in 1666, all because of one spark. And I tell you that because James chapter 3 likens the tongue, doesn't it, to a spark. It's got this incredible power in it to set ablaze righteousness or, or unrighteousness. That with a simple word, we can bring blessing, we can bring cursing. And so what I want to do as we even begin to close this meditation on the ninth word is, is help you understand how God's word helps you use your tongue to be a spark for Jesus Christ. So number one, speak in love. What does it mean to obey more faithfully the ninth word? It means speak in love. That's why the Apostle Paul is going to say in what is it, Ephesians chapter 4, that we're to be about the business of speaking the truth in love 
As we grow up in every way into him who is our head, which is Jesus Christ. You know, don't you, that there's a way in which you can speak the truth. It blisters. It bruises. It breaks. That we can have such a zeal for convictional realities that we never have any ability of giving comfort to another person. Oh, Christians speak the truth in love. Number two, Christians speak with grace. With grace, this is all over the Bible in a variety of different ways, but just two references for you. You can think of Colossians chapter 4, that our speech always be gracious. Or perhaps even Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come from your mouth, but only as such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So kids, just as, you know, French fries need a healthy dose of salt. Or a proper cake has a proper amount of icing. So does proper Christian conversation have a large dose of grace, doesn't it? In its conversation. But it's not just in truth. It's not just with grace. It's speak of Jesus Christ. You might not know that Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 calls Jesus the faithful witness. And it's not just that he's the faithful witness. He has given us his witness that's why in Acts chapter 1, in this scene where Jesus is soon getting ready to ascend into heaven, he's got his apostles around him, and he says, well, you need to stay here until the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit who is my witness. He's going to bear witness about me. He's going to, in your heart, bear witness with the truth that you are children of God, and I'm going to pour out my witness into your hearts. And you remember what he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So even as the church continues to perpetuate the apostolic gospel, to go about faithfulness to its charter from Jesus Christ, what we are doing more often than not as a church body is speaking the truth of Jesus Christ in the courtroom of life. We are bearing true witness to he who is love, he who is grace, he who is truth. And like every one of God's laws, these are meant to convict us, aren't they? Poke us, prick us, cut us even to the heart, perhaps in ways that are unlike even some of the other Ten Commandments children, you, you know you've broken this word. No doubt this week in one way, shape, or form. And you need to know the good news that's offered to sinners like you and me and the Savior Jesus Christ who set aside his divine rights that he became like a man, took on the servant form, and he perfectly obeyed God's word, never speaking falsehood, never walking in falsehood. And you might know that when the night he was betrayed, he was summoned to Caiaphas' house. This is kangaroo court taking place. And they're trying to establish a charge against Jesus. And they can't do it. And both Matthew and Mark's gospel record, and they brought many false witnesses before Jesus. So what is it that nailed Christ Jesus to the cross but a breaking of the ninth commandment? And most amazingly, you might know that as Jesus was in that kangaroo court, do you know what Peter was doing out in the courtyard? Breaking the ninth commandment three times. I don't know who he is. I haven't been with him. And then isn't it amazing that he who is truth, grace, and love, just days later, three times, restoring Peter to fellowship. I love you. Now go feed my sheep. I love you. Now go speak my truth. I love you. Now go be my witness to the ends of the earth.
So you too, of course, with the Spirit poured out into your heart, if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, He speaks to you even this day by His Word and Spirit. I love you. You too have my Spirit. Go speak in love. Go speak with grace. Go speak of me as you live in the truth. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the abundant mercy of Jesus Christ. That we who have so often sinned and committed error find forgiveness because he was killed in our place. Lord, we want to be a people who know what it means to have healthy conversation of spiritual matters. We thrive in the truth, that speak the truth, that grace and love would always be upon our lips. We do pray that you would forgive us of the manifest ways in which we have broken this word. We know how our consciences accuse us. We have so often spoken in anger and bitterness that wrath, malice, and clamor have always been in our spirits much more than compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and meekness. So do sustain us by your spirit as we want to be obedient to your word. That we might find the cleansing forgiveness, but also the empowering strength of Jesus Christ to live in the truth. We do pray all these things in his name. Amen.